Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Thursday, July 8th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. It's been a very rainy and gray day here, which I usually take as an act of a higher power to invite a lazy day on. I mean, with the way sports schedules are at now, I feel the need to watch tennis in the morning, watch basketball or hockey, or used to watch hockey at night, and then try and do some productive things in between. So it's really just the in-between bit that got cut out today, but nice to have a day on the couch looking at the gray skies and just kind of melting into the couch. How are you doing? Good. Any thunderstorms there? I don't think so. Okay. We had some... We had some wicked ones here today. Oh yeah. Like uh the type where the thunder shakes your your reality a little bit for for about a minute there as it rolls through. There's there's some some good thunderstorms. I'm a big fan of of a good thunderstorm if I'm inside and able to watch it from the safety of and comfort of my home. <laughs> yeah, that's uh we've had some flash rains a couple times here, like leave the house to go get groceries, last thought out the door. Should I be wearing my sunglasses? Step out of the grocery store. Huh? That's funny. When did the skies get gray? And then about halfway there, like torrential catching. And so what I thought to myself is really cheesy, but it was almost as if here in London today, they were celebrating the Stanley cup along Uh... with the Tampa Bay lightning. And it is maybe the cheesiest thing I've ever said on this podcast, but I'm going with it. And (laughs) we're going to make the not so subtle transition into our, oh, I'll say first, or to help the transition, you know what, (laughs) at least it's blue and white. Oh, no, that hurts. Now I feel worse going into the transition. Luke Shen is a two-time Stanley Cup champion. Leafs draft pick Luke Shen. Okay. Um, (laughs) The Tampa Bay Lightning, our back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. That's where we will begin the podcast. We've also got combat corner, football fan cave, tennis, baseball, basketball. Boom. All the good stuff. Uh, I'd like to pat myself on the back on calling the Tampa Bay back-to-back early at the start of the season. This a team. Okay. You... I guess we have to acknowledge the salary cap shenanigans going in. It is a bit absurd that they were able to have a like heart trophy caliber player on their team, just bracketed out of the salary cap. But at the same time, I feel like only there's very few teams in the league that can say, Hey, let's just take our best player off the roster for our entire regular season and we're that confident about making the playoffs like is Edmonton going to take Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl out so they can make a playoff run no are the Washington Capitals going to take Alexander Ovechkin out no are the there's like I think Toronto could do it Colorado could do it and Vegas could do it but that's not really the way their roster's made up there's very few teams that can afford to take a cal- a player the caliber of Nikita Kucherov out of their lineup for a regular season, still have the confidence to make the playoffs. And you did see Tampa came third out of fourth in their division. So 
it does balance out a little. I've made my position very clear on this. I think we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the playoffs. Not quite sure. A little fuzzy now. It's been a while. But similar to the point you just made, if a team can make it the entire regular season, sitting there essentially best player, then they totally deserve to have him come back. The other thing is, it's the rules right now. They're not operating outside of the rule book. Everything they're doing is legal to a certain extent. Either that or there is kind of no rule yet. It's something the league will look at. But for now, every other team had the opportunity to do a similar thing. The Leafs actually did it with Freddie Anderson and Riley Nash and a couple other type things. Um, And there were another couple of teams who also took advantage of it as well. So everyone's on that equal playing field. Tampa actually has a disadvantage. They're missing their best player in the regular season and they managed to do it. And so what you really should be frustrated about is the fact that Tampa was able to go and get other guys with that extra cap that other teams didn't want to sign or Tampa had guys like Tyler Johnson that they put on waivers and no one claimed. It seemed like other teams in this league were tentative to try and take away from Tampa or or it's kind of like the Chicago Blackhawks of the mid 2010s, like teams, they just help them out for no reason. And this is the best team in the league. And so Tampa is able to acquire this depth and wealth of talent. And so the, the most notable thing is Kucherov obviously coming back and being a Conn Smythe runner up essentially, but it's a whole storm of incompetence on the behalf of other NHL GMs and, and not taking advantage of the rules to the extent that the lightning did. So that's where I stand on it. If you don't like it, tell the NHL to change it and good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. I think we might see some action on paying 25% of the cap hit sooner rather than later. Is that one a little, probably more straightforward to target and something there's going to be motivation to do every year. Whereas that's an incredibly specific injury timeline that matched up perfectly for the Lightning that gave them the opportunity to do that. So much more once in the blue moon thing. But however they did it, they came into this playoffs with a Stanley Cup caliber roster. And that's something you see happen every year from multiple teams. The Colorado Avalanche seems like they had a Stanley Cup caliber roster ready. But the difference is this Tampa Bay Lightning squad was firing on all cylinders and every part of the engine worked exactly as it was supposed to. The forward core was dynamic, great for a lot of goals, an amazing power play throughout. And defensively, they were golden shutouts in game five against the Habs to close it out, shutouts in every game. They closed out this series, all four of them. Uh, that not the only shutouts Vasilevsky picked up. They only faced one game where they were at risk of elimination, that game seven against the Islanders, which is a pretty great run, pretty unchallenged run. And yeah, we saw that pretty well play out over five games against the Habs this finals. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's, Obviously, you can make the case, and it's something I put in our notes, is that Montreal, no one expected them to be here. And even if the most passionate fans should admit that, um, this was an incredibly fun and uh, unexpected run that this team has made. But in the end, it's, it's 
not necessarily anything they did wrong. They played great hockey. It's just Tampa Bay is that much better than every other team in the league because of what we talked about, their ability to accumulate talent. And so Montreal could have some regrets where in the end, at the final stage, you're just missing that elite level of offensive talent, that that creation uh, to go alongside your Cole Caulfield, your Nick Suzuki, um, your Tyler Toffoli maybe, because just if Philip Deneau is your number one guy, it's great. He's an amazing defensive center, and he should get paid a bunch of money because he's been awesome, but you need someone to drive the play a little bit more, and that's you'll see like a team like the New York Islanders who plays a similar style of hockey to Montreal. Matthew Barzell is just better than anyone Montreal has on their roster in terms of creation, and that's really what drives the engine of that team, and that's why they push Tampa to seven. That's, I would say, the closest team in uh, level and, and just like team cohesiveness to the Lightning. And so in the end, Montreal, like partially it's going up against the absolute juggernaut that is the Lightning. And, and part of it's just they ran out of those times when they could shell up and not have the, the firepower to really go against other teams. Yeah, what you saw in a lot of games this playoff run for them is Carey Price was able to bail them out of a lot of situations. Their top four defensemen were able to step up big and limit those situations many a time and then they were just able to be absolutely lethal in capitalizing on these really small opportunities that you would see the team they're playing against get and not be able to capitalize on but it felt like especially in that leaf series every breakaway they got they almost managed to score um half chances like on the red line just pucks to the net getting the bounces and playing with a confidence as that situation played out again and again and backed them up that would be okay for them but the defense of tampa bay able to shut the door and give them even fewer opportunities and vasilevsky able to cull the lethalness or efficiency they were showing on those opportunities uh price was criticized for not playing amazing i remember even in game one i I think Tampa maybe scored three or four goals that game. It felt like it could have been six or seven. Um, I, I don't think there are any criticisms about the game five he played, limiting the bolts to just one goal, and that a goal he could do absolutely nothing about, the puck getting through two defenders to find the open man. So, yeah, I agree. I think this Montreal Canadiens team, after getting through Vegas, you can't argue that at that moment in time they were – one of the best teams in the league but this bolts team was just even better and at this point i feel like the only thing left to ask is can they do it again uh like is this a dynasty you have you look at like the teams that would maybe get that label these past couple years um the two weaker cases would be like the penguins with their back-to-back and the la kings i think they won two over five years and then the chicago blackhawks probably the strongest case they won three over five years which i think is kind of the still the standard so the tampa bay lightning have three years to try and win one more for that same status but looking at this core they have like the elite group of forwards hedman vasilevsky is it going anywhere? And then 
able to get veteran guys like McDonough, Savard, uh, guys like Maroon who are going to come up and play like the checking roles, which are a bit more interchangeable. So if that core stays there, they're still at an age. Stamkos, I think, like the oldest in that level. Like, what do you think? Can they do it again? Well, first of all, I would say yes to your question. This is a dynasty. In the salary cap era, the amount of parity that exists in this league, if you can win two cups in a row, that automatically cements you as a dynasty. It just It's super, super difficult to do. The NHL is probably the most equal league across the board in terms of teams and the amount of physical punishment you have to go through. This is especially remarkable because they technically won two cups in less than a calendar year. Um, I would definitely grant them the dynasty status. It's really impressive what they've done. In terms of do I think they can do it again? Well, I already bet on them no this year. And I think I'm going to do it again just simply because last year was unique in a sense where not a lot of teams had a lot of money to spend due to the pandemic. They still don't now, but it was even more so worrisome. But at this point, you would hope that teams realize we're not going to continue to help out this team by not picking up their guys. And so you're going to see teams throwing some money at, at Blake Coleman, at Pat Maroon, Barkley Goudreau, at Tyler Johnson, at Alex Kalorn, Anthony Sorelli, whoever's available, right? The teams are going to be after these guys because they're proven winners and they're great contributors. Like you said, a great core forward depth and teams are going to try and strip them for parts because you want that winning culture. Uh, and, and it's, now these guys have won their cups. They want to go make their money. So I, I do think there's a high probability that a lot of you guys won't be back. John Cooper even acknowledged in his presser after the, after the game saying that we kind of told the guys this would be our last run together as a group. Um, and so I think they, they seem pretty uh, at peace with the fact that some of these guys are going to be moving on. And that means that things are going to open up for the other contenders in the league. For sure. It's a question of how interchangeable are those players and how easy is it to instill that same winning culture, dedication and style of play into the new group they're going to have to bring inside to complement their core, which I don't think is going anywhere. I haven't checked the salary cap for like Kucherov, Hedman, Stamkos, Point, Palat, if when any of those guys are going, Vasilevsky, of course. But... Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> we can't wrap up this segment without talking about Nikita Kucherov, the man himself, saw post-game presser comments. What did you think? So what I, what I say to the people who are angry is you put a guy who has, who, as we found out now, played through a fractured rib, but um, a guy who, well, okay, this will come later. He has just worked his butt off for the last 11 months, including the previous year of the season, and has now won the hardest trophy to win, arguably, in all of sports, twice in a row. And he has downed a couple Bud Lights. Um, he's Russian. That, I wanted to have that later because I think that's less of a factor, but definitely plays a role. He's going to go in front of the mic and say what he wants. And... Like I said way back when the U.S. did the garbage can thing with Team Canada, if you win, you should be allowed to say whatever you want as long as it's not egregious. So the fact that he makes those comments 
that Vasilevsky deserves to be the Vezina candidate. The fact that he makes those comments, why is Montreal celebrating like they won the final after they won one game? The last round was their finals. That's fine. They won. They get to talk the talk and walk the walk. They deserved it. They did it. And he was a big part of that. And there were a lot of factors playing into that he wasn't his full professional self in front of the microphone and was a little bit buzzed. And uh, then we saw some of what Pat Maroon said later on, trying to fire the boys up and just it. What do you expect if you're going to put them in front of the mic? And, and I had no problem with it. I didn't catch the Maroon comments. Oh, well, he, uh, I, he was just absolutely in another planet when he went up to the microphone and asked everyone why he was the one up at the mic and not the, the like <laughs> leadership of the team then proceeded to yell at all the fans and players to turn their phones on, their flashlights on, uh, swore a bunch, and then like just got the boys fired up. It was pretty good. It was pretty nice. good. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with anything Kucherov said either. I mean, maybe a bit of enjoying like pouring a bit of ice onto the city. It definitely erupted after that game four win and nothing wrong with that trying to fire your own home team up give them some motivation to play but yeah I almost got a bit of like a Michael Jordan mentality from that like okay we're against the whole city like Michael Jordan would like make it personal with one player Kucherov made it personal with an entire city and fan base so if that it's the chip on his shoulder he needs to play with the edge he wants to have to try and like take the cup home at night great and if he's an honest and transparent enough guy to just let that out in the interview great I think very few sports would be harmed by players saying what's actually on their mind more of the time in pressers so maybe every player should get a little hammered for every post-game conference I wouldn't go that far but I definitely agree with the sentiment so uh yeah that's great looking forward to the parade videos looking forward to all of the different stories that come out uh, where Lord Stanley's mug will be traveling with the team, but that's going to wrap up the 2021 NHL season and wasting no time jumping into storylines for next season was Vladimir Tarasenko who decided to drop a bomb right in the middle of game five last night saying that he wants out of St. Louis and a lot of that coming from uh, what is reported as, as some disagreements between himself and, and the organization regarding the treatment of his shoulder surgeries over the past two, three years. Um, he's disgruntled. He's unhappy with how things went there. And so he's got, I believe, two years left on his eight-year deal. And he's going to have a lot of suitors. However, you worry about the injuries. So I just, I'm interesting to see who's in. Obviously, we know Vegas is in on everyone. I could see Colorado being in. I could see Boston being in. I could see the Islanders being in. Um, I was surprised there were no Marner for Tarasenko trade talks today on Leafs Twitter. They were a little bit more focused on another thing we'll talk about next. Uh, but yeah, it's a big guy to be on the table. Him and Eichel, I think, are probably the two biggest names. And then Hall would be a close third behind those guys. But there's going to be some big, big moves this summer. Um, looking forward to next season already. Yeah, looking forward to the off season already for that coverage. Tarasenko probably not the premium product he would have been even one year ago. 
after a bit of a disappointing season coming in, he wasn't able to play much. Maybe there's a case that a full off-season of rest and not hurrying back onto the ice will make him better, but it'll be... I'm sure the Blues could like field a, some low-ball mid-tier offers, like maybe one first overall or like first round pick and like a third round drafted player type thing. It'll be interesting to see what they value him at. And then, yeah, I guess not a huge part of their core anymore, super important variable for them to depend on to win. So I wonder what kind of tool they'd be looking to get back to try and, I think they're still in win now mode, but. I would say they're probably looking for someone to replace some of that scoring production because when he was out this year, you saw that they they went after Mike Hoffman. Um, so that would be a, a big point of emphasis for them. But if they can move him and get another high-level player back from another one of these contenders or a serviceable player and a pick, then why not, right? If he wants out, then you got to do your best to try and keep his value up and get what you can. Yeah, two years long enough to... <laughs> stall the negotiations quite a while and make and and even that drives up the value because a team acquiring him will have control for those two seasons which is pretty rare maybe uh columbus and uh rights to a certain line (laughs) yes they they have been involved in a couple others i know they're also linked to eichel i just i don't know if (laughs) that that would be it'd be smart on st louis's side is like hey you want out of here? Okay, we'll send you to Columbus. Have fun, buddy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we got one last piece of news here that came through uh, early this afternoon. And I apologize to non-Leafs fans, but we have to talk about it. Uh, Travis Dermott, re-signing two years, $3 million, so $1.5 per year. Um, he took a discount this season. Uh, and... Didn't have a high production season, but I think he was relatively solid as as a five, six, seven type guy. Uh, he gets paid, I would say, a smidge over market value, but it's something you can definitely stomach if you're Kyle Dubas. And the big part of this deal for me is it gets it done, right? It's you, The expansion draft is very, very near. And you want to have as much guys under your control, as much flexibility as possible going into that expansion draft. Now that they have him signed, Seattle could pick him or you can deal him or you can protect him. And so it's just nice for Dubas to have that done so that you can project what you want to be doing and and really focus on this upcoming expansion draft and the NHL draft uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, teams have paid more for players who do less for you he was a serviceable top six defenseman when he was in the lineup we learned that lesson the hard way well both our last playoff runs you never know when injuries are going to happen if for nothing else he's a guy you're happy to have on the roster come playoff time because you know he's been in the big moments enough where he's not going to choke and be completely hapless but definitely hope to see more looks from uh Lilligren and Sandine. Yes. Oh yeah. And, and that was, people were, were crying in the streets today because they're worried that he's going to take Sandine's minutes. He's not going to take Sandine's minutes. That's not happening. 
Um, and, and I don't, yeah, he, they're completely different guys too. Travis is now more of a defensively responsible guy. Uh, obviously one terrible turnover in, in game six is really hurt his, uh, opinion in, in the minds of Leafs fans. But overall, I think at 1.5, it's solid. You have him under control. You have that flexibility. If he's your 60, that's not a bad spot to be. And I think he actually, he's coming into his prime now of his career. I think he's got more to show even than what we've seen from him so far. Um, and I think he's in line for more than six points next season. I think he's in line for some better defensive play as he continues to strengthen and learn how to play in his own end at a higher level. I just, I don't see really anything to worry about here because worst comes to worst, you expose him and, and Seattle takes him. And that actually isn't the worst thing either. Cause you've got these two younger guys waiting to jump into his spot. Completely agree. Sweet. All right. Uh, that'll be it for talking hockey. And, and unless we have some big, big news going forward, it might be a, a couple of weeks until we're back for the expansion draft with the talking hockey segment. But let's take a quick break and come back for some combat corner. And we're back. Sports next door. We're here to talk some combat corner and uh, a big, 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 big fight this weekend. Uh, it is the third of the, yep. the trilogy between Connor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. And uh, Max is here to break it down for us. Excited for this one, Max. I'll throw it over to you, my friend. Yeah, this one coming in not too many months after their last fight, which I don't think anyone was expecting a Poirier second round knockout. I thought it was possible, but thought it would happen in much deeper waters if it was going to. But similar to the last one, there's a lot of confidence around Conor McGregor in the takes and opinions I'm seeing. And... I'm wondering if it's the last hurrah of the mystic magic. It has definitely waned for me. It sounds like it's somewhat waned for Owen as well. It, but there's something about Conor McGregor that makes some people just want to believe and not care when the last time he beat a really high-level opponent is. I, I don't know what that effect was and if or why not it's as present now. So, so it's coming to me now. Conor McGregor is the Dallas Cowboys of the UFC, where it it has like the more recent iteration of the Dallas Cowboys have been incredibly mediocre. And I'm not saying McGregor is mediocre, but it's in regards to they are constantly overrated and held to a higher steam than they end up producing. So the Cowboys, people love betting on them. They're America's team, quote unquote, and they're just incredibly beloved. So people will always bet money on them, on their win totals, on their success, on their Super Bowl odds, things like that. And Vegas always makes a killing because they never hit those projections, right? And so there's a bit of that here with Conor McGregor. Now, before you told me, I asked if he had lost three in a row. He won that one against Cowboy, but you said they could be not lost in this recent Poirier loss. So people are... I think holding him to a higher degree because of what he did four or five years ago and, and the heights that he reached and the popularity that he gained. And it's inflated now what he's actually producing. Um, 
And so that's just what I've seen. I'd like, I'm a little bit turned off at this point from the McGregor show. Yeah. And I feel like that's really at stake in this fight. If Dustin Poirier is as elite as it gets at lightweight. And that was the amazing thing I think about Conor McGregor's run. This guy who started out just in the UFC like any other fighter and from his first, second win, people saying, wow, this guy could be UFC champ. He's knocking out everyone. And watching him rise up through a stiffer level of competition and continue to do that, I'd say peaking at Jose Aldo. I know Eddie Alvarez came after that. But to say like, wow, this guy's knocking out Jose Aldo in 14 seconds, like just like he's knocked out everyone else to watch that run and like the consistency of his dominance that like never faltered despite step-ups in competition just created this incredible belief both for himself and for his fan base and the ability of him to do that is what's really on the line here he lost to Habib he lost to Poirier the last fight two of the best lightweights of our time and ever and he he's all about the rematches right when he lost to Diaz it's let me I want this one back like same rules same circumstances this time like no punches pulled I'm gonna go back I'm gonna do it and you saw him get in there you saw him make some adjustments and you saw him pull it off so he created this effect and belief like this guy's confidence this guy's determination this guy's ability to execute when it really matters to reinvent himself it's this idea behind him that i don't really know if it's justified and i don't know if against poirier can even come close to the type of adjustments he made will be nearly as effective the two big adjustments for diaz were like let me not throw these crazy spinning kicks and just go for the knockout and let me really conserve myself, not get drawn into firefights and understand that I probably can't knock this guy out. Against Poirier, he's got got to do the opposite. He's got to throw more spinning kicks. He's got to try and knock him out quicker because if, again, if it goes into deep waters, I'd favor Poirier all the way. He showed that his striking timing, his striking defense are there, and McGregor is just not a five-round fighter. He never has been, and he never will be. His The way he tries to punch, the force he puts in, he, you just can't do it with his body type for 25 minutes. So he's got to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, I did maybe a six out of 10 last time. How do I really knock him out? And I I think Dustin Poirier did everything perfectly. I, he grappled at the opportunity he got. He put some wear and tear into McGregor's muscles. He kicked out the legs when it was there. I'm sure Connor's going to have practiced checking his calf kicks, but People who think that's the only reason Dustin won aren't paying attention to the main thing, which is McGregor landed and it really didn't do that much to Dustin. Dustin was able to eat McGregor's shots and they hurt. They back, they made him be careful. Yeah, he doesn't want three more of those in the next five seconds, but it's not that featherweight touch of death that I, Deontay Wilder, I need to be perfect for two seconds. And Conor McGregor at featherweight was very good at finding his moments to be perfect for two seconds. But against at lightweight, it seems like that's not enough. 
even like the Alvarez fight he landed on him hard in the first minute of that fight but it didn't knock him out it took like seven eight minutes of like perfect dominant work to get to that knockout point and Dustin Poirier has too much mental confidence too good striking defense to shell up and clam out like Eddie Alvarez did he's not going to give McGregor that kind of opportunity so McGregor needs to find several perfect shots and I just don't of course anything can happen but I think Poirier showed the striking defense the wherewithal of what kind of power McGregor does have but the ability to neutralize negate that power and the offensive ability to continue to threaten as soon as the dangerous most dangerous moments of McGregor's fight are through and that's exactly what happened the last time it does seem like McGregor one difference we can already see in his approach is the mental no more Mr. Nice Guy which I love there's not going to be any any excuses when whatever happens happens the only thing I hate about this matchup is the fact that Connor could potentially get a title shot if he somehow beats Dustin which would be absurd his first lightweight win since knocking out Eddie Alvarez way back like five six years ago that it's a weird trilogy where the first win took place like six seven years ago and so if Dustin wins it feels like yes that's cemented if Connor wins I'd almost want to see a fourth but I feel like two years is the right time span for a trilogy and yeah that's the UFC main event which it'll be a show and a spectacle for sure looking forward to it I will be off camping at our usual time Sunday, so might have to record something in the wee hours of 2 a.m. right after the fight. We'll see. The other thing real quick on this card, the co-main event, I find it really intriguing as well. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns coming off his title shot loss to Kamaru Usman, which before that fight, everyone was talking about, man, Gilbert Burns, this like, perfect welterweight this guy who can grapple who can strike just knocked out Damien Maya took it to Tyron Woodley but in hindsight after getting tooled on the feet by Usman for most of the fight I'm kind of like how good is this guy's striking really at welterweight I don't think bringing the pressure and striking on Tyron Woodley at 40 years old is really that great an accomplishment. I don't think knocking out Damien Maya is really that great of a striking accomplishment. So I love this matchup because we really get to find out quickly how one Burns' striking looks against probably the best pure striker in the division. Wonder Boy coming off that clinic he just put on Jeff Neal over five rounds so you know the striking as sharp as ever with wonder boy and I, I think it's a great test to see the level of burns which i think needs examining but it's also an opportunity for wonder boy where if he wins he's on the streak he's a very different stylistic matchup than most of what we've seen against usman a guy at this point we're really looking for interesting challenges for so I think either way, going to learn something very interesting. And I also love that Wonder Boy has a fantastic jab, which was definitely the shot that gave Usman the most trouble. Not the kind of power Usman has where he's necessarily going to stun Burns with it, but 
landing 1520 to set up something sharper just as good or a three round striking clinic where just a clear dominant performance would also be very interesting after each of the last respective fights that's kind of why i have to bet on i think wonder boy has been in this game for too long and is too good an anti-grappler for someone who's more a jujitsu practitioner than wrestler like burns but we'll see that fight also super interesting looking forward to ufc 264 i believe and we're back sports next door myself max here to shut up my virtual neighbor owen here to tell us about the euro cup absolutely we are in for a fun fun final on saturday now max uh what they're saying now is it coming home or is it coming rome <laughs> the matchup between the english and the italians it's going to be an absolute heavyweight bout uh italy defeating Spain on penalties after giving up a fairly late goal. And uh, we have a new choke artist maybe arriving on the scene in uh, Juan Morata. Uh, a friend of mine, Shadow Jerry, uh, came up with the phrase Timo in front of the player's name uh, in honor of Timo Werner, the Chelsea player who is a known choke artist. And so we had Timo Mbappe earlier for France, and now we have Timo Morata uh, choking for the Spanish and Italy is through the final and uh, college and Clinton going absolutely bananas in Toronto. Max and I went to elementary school in that area. We are well-versed in the passion that that community has for their team as well. Uh, Woodbridge scenes from Woodbridge, absolutely bonkers. It's followed up by another great match. Denmark jumps out to the league with a stunning free kick, maybe should have been saved, but stunning nonetheless, and the Team of Destiny vibes were massive in that moment. England comes back, a uh, nice cross, leads to an own goal, uh, a tough one if he doesn't really deflect that, Raheem Sterling's putting it away anyways, and then this game goes to extra time, and Denmark was totally gassed. They were completely parking the bus, just trying to play for penalties. England all over them. Finally, Raheem Sterling goes down in the box. A dubious, questionable penalty call where uh, you would hope that VAR would go in and, and make the right call on that, but VR, VAR upholds it. So uh, a time where even replay maybe gets it wrong. The problem is in when you slow it down, any bit of contact looks like a foul. Uh, and so it's tough to really overrule the ref's decision. Kane stopped on the penalty, but pots the rebound. And England takes a 2-1 win, and they are heading to the final for the first time, I believe, since 1955. Uh, they've been in an international final and a really, really big chance here to have a historic win and bring the championship home to England. Looking forward to it. I also wanted to touch on another really big, big match on Saturday, the Copa America final between Argentina and Brazil. This may be Messi's last chance at a legacy game because right now him and Ronaldo very equal in terms of production and success that they've had. But the one thing Ronaldo really holds over Messi is Ronaldo winning that last Euro Cup and having a uh, regional trophy of that international magnitude. Messi has never won a Copa America. And so this might be his best and last chance to grab one 
uh, some really tough moments for him in this tournament in the past. And so could he exercise his demons and, and really establish himself right up there in the Mount Rushmore GOAT conversation with a big win for his country? So looking forward to that one, looking forward to the Euro final. Soccer really has has grown a lot. It, I mean, it always does during these international competitions, but it feels like a little bit extra. Uh, it, it's growing more so in North America with the success that the Canadian teams had as of late and, and the growth of MLS. So soccer's growing, man. And, and you got to take note because it's, it's a game that while it is slow, it has a lot of things right over other sports with its continuous play, lack of commercials, and it's, it's just free, free flowing natures. There's not a lot of stoppages in soccer. And so those are the two things that does right. Okay. That's it for me, Max. I will throw it over to you for our quick little tennis segment. Yeah. Us recording that Thursday night right now doesn't seem like much of a point talking about Denis Shapovalov. My thoughts on that already up on YouTube. He plays Novak Djokovic tomorrow morning. Who's nervous? I'm not nervous. Um, But I did want to talk about the other Canadian for now, Felix Auger-Aliassime, who lost to Matteo Berrettini in the quarterfinals and I just wanted to talk about the run he had at Wimbledon, a personal Grand Slam best for him, reaching the quarterfinals. I I think definitely some pros to take home and also pretty clear what he needs to work on. Uh, I guess winning four matches to get there to the quarterfinals. And you saw... As the competition rose over those matches, the level of play he was able to put out drop started out very strong in this tournament with a three sets victory over uh, Montero, went against Ymir, took it in four sets, and then against Kyrgios, it really became an uphill battle. The injury playing a big part before, well, the momentum was all with Kyrgios before he got injured and then with Ojeale seem after. So hard to know how that would have played out without the injury. The match against Zverev, a match that Zverev kind of handed to him on a platter with all the doubtful faults that still ended up being neck and neck. The biggest moment of his tennis career for sure coming in that match in the fifth set, he pulled it out. He sealed the deal. He locked in. He played the better tennis. And if nothing else, that is absolutely huge as a been there, done that moment to draw confidence on for later, to just get that feeling in, get your first win at a Grand Slam round of 16 over a legit top 10 opponent. He had to earn it in the end. So if nothing else, just to win that match, to then go and experience the quarterfinals, to build on the experience, which you hear Djokovic, you hear Nadal, you hear Federer say that is the most important quality or like my biggest asset is my experience. And this is how he get his, gets his. And hopefully just looking at uh, how he played throughout the tournament, you see the level of competition get to him in two ways. One, the winners to unforced errors ratio really like dipping, starting out quite positive. And then by the end in that match against Berrettini, just 24 winners versus 41 unforced errors. Berrettini's ratio also 
negative, interestingly enough. Uh, but then the really, the bit that really hurt him was just a 60% first serve in. It was also the same against Zverev taking, I think, uh, 56% of his first serves in against him. It wasn't great against Kyrgios either, 60. Before that, it was north of 70. So you see in these tighter matches with more pressure, he struggled to get the first serve in more. Uh, he was pretty consistent around like about 70% of the points won off his first serve, which you'd also like to see rise a little, but some confidence on that first serve, I think the biggest. And then the confidence and skill to go for it and not make unforced errors against the big boys, which is where it really led up against Berrettini. I think uh, both had their moments early. Um, huge credit to Felix for rallying back against Berrettini. Right at the end of that first set, it looked like the match might just be a run through and he managed to break Berrettini's serve once at the end of that first set already having been broken twice just to say, hey, I'm not going anywhere. And you saw that pay dividends in the second set and even the third set where he definitely gave Berrettini the toughest match. Matteo had played all tournament. He made him look beatable. He exposed the weaknesses in his game outside of that killer serve and that forehand. But he wasn't able to keep his level of play high enough to dictate that the match would play on Berrettini's weaknesses and made his own mistakes trying to get it there, which Berrettini was able to capitalize on more consistently. So hope to see him work on that first serve just hopefully having experienced this the next time he's in that situation he handles it a little better that's really all you can ask but congratulations to felix on an awesome wimbledon run looking forward to seeing him at the olympics at the national bank open here in canada and then at the u.s open as well that's what i was gonna say we gotta get you to uh the women's in, in montreal this summer applying on that media pass bud Oh, is is it not open to fans? Uh, I think it will be in limited. They're they're only offering media passes to larger media groups, but we'll see how we can word the application. <laughs> we uh in in any sense, you you gotta get that'd be great for some content. Get out there, film a couple uh IRL videos. And you're getting to Toronto, eh? Maybe, maybe. I if if I could get tickets, oh yeah, I'd go. That would be electric. But uh, one can hope. One can hope. Of course, I put all my energy into learning everything I can about the ATP, and then it's like the WTA in Montreal this year. But that would still be very fun. Absolutely. All right, really quick before we have to break. Uh, I'm running out of time here. Quick little baseball bit. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays have traded one of their younger players who they were excited to develop, Rowdy Telez, uh, in exchange for two relievers from the Milwaukee Brewers, Trevor Richards and uh, Bowden Francis. This is a bit of a win-now move. Rowdy is kind of stuck behind Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at this point uh, at third base, and, and it's a very replaceable position to get a backup first baseman. So he was he had become expendable. At this point, uh, sad to see him go because 
I think he's got a ton of upside as a hitter and, and is a very solid fielder as well. It's going to be a bummer. Milwaukee seems to get some of these guys from Toronto and turn them into studs. So I would not be surprised if that happens, but until then, we will cheer on our, our new relievers to the Blue Jay family. Trevor Richards had a solid inning of work last night against the Orioles, and hopefully Francis can be the same. So uh, best of luck to Rowdy. Thanks for your time, and, and welcome to the, the club, to those two new relievers. It's time to turn it up because we are in the midst of a, a playoff run, hopefully. So that'll do it for this one. We will probably be having a NBA Finals Game Tune reaction video coming out tomorrow uh, after it happens tonight, but uh, not enough time to get into it now and, and a little bit too far gone from Game 1 to really draw any more conclusions. Looking to see how the Bucks adjust to that Game 1 win for the Suns, but uh, that's going to do it for this one. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Max, I'll throw it to you, my friend. That's all, folks. Sports Next Door signing out.